Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and as always, thank you so much for listening in. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with expert Waldorf teacher Lori Cran all about first grade and the first grader. How do we know a child is ready to start first grade? What makes the Waldorf first grade curriculum unique? How can we best support the developing seven-year-old in our lives? These are all questions we'll be diving into in this episode. You can find the show notes page for this episode at waldorfy.com forward slash first grade. Before we jump in, I want to tell you all about my favorite shoe company, Softstar. Softstar Shoes makes minimal shoes for happy, healthy feet. Every one of their shoes is handcrafted in the U.S. in their workshop in Oregon. They work hard to make Softstar a socially and environmentally responsible company, as well as giving a good experience to both employees and customers. What's their specialty? Handcrafted, minimal, simple leather shoes. Although I first discovered Softstar when searching for great shoes made sustainably for my toddler, I've become completely sold on their goodies for myself. In winter, I'm thoroughly enjoying my cozy Softstar slippers, but my absolute favorite shoe is the Primal Sawyer. Everywhere I go, everyone asks me where I got these cool shoes. More than that though, they've been beyond comfortable. They feature a zero drop Vibram sole that my feet just love. And I'm someone who usually has achy feet but not in my soft stars. One of the things I loved about soft star shoes when I discovered them for my son is how they're designed to allow your feet and toes to naturally splay and contact the earth comfortably. Of course, this is crucial for the health of young developing feet. And now I've realized it's what my feet needed too. You can learn more and shop by visiting their website, softstarshoes.com. Plus, you can get 10% off your order at Softstar Shoes until April 12th, 2021 with a coupon code Waldorfy, W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y. That code is good for everything excluding clearance and accessories. So go check them out for yourself at softstarshoes.com. And again, that coupon code is just good through April 12th, 2021. Now let me introduce you to my guest, Lori. Lori Cran holds a PhD in U.S. history and a Waldorf certification from WTDA Ann Arbor, Michigan. Lori has been a class teacher at the Cincinnati Waldorf School since 1995, taken two cycles through the grades, and is currently in her third cycle. Additionally, Lori teaches U.S. history and civics at the Cincinnati Waldorf School. In 2012, Lori gave a TEDx talk titled The Heart of Education. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today, Lori. My pleasure. I'm so excited to have you. I have some really lovely, vivid memories of first grade, of the first day of first grade, um, of the experience that I had with my own teacher who I had um, grades one through four. And I'm just so excited to kind of get into all the juicy details of why everything was so magical. So it's very exciting for me to kind of get to relive a little bit of that experience today with you. Wonderful. Maybe we should begin by talking about before first grade even. So how can you tell a child is ready for first grade? So um, there are definitely uh, uh, quite a few developmental and I would say physical markers that an early childhood teacher as well as the first grade teacher and parents would be looking for. 
So um, as we know, uh, the child is you know, born with a what we'd like to call a heredity body. And uh, we know that that heredity body is being replaced when those first those baby teeth uh, begin to fall out and the adult teeth begin to come in. And so that is certainly something that can be looked at. But other uh, uh, marking posts or signposts would be to look for things such as uh, does the child is they are they beginning to develop a dominance of eye, ear, hand, foot? Um, are they beginning to be able to track from left to right? Uh, can they draw a line from left to right uninterrupted at that midline? Can they hear directions and complete directions two or three at a time? How is their memory doing? Uh, can they hear a simple story and recall some of it? Can they um, sort a set of beads, colored beads? Can they skip? Can they hop? Can they begin to jump rope? Teachers would look at the house person tree and see if there's any grounding. Uh, and then, of course, there's something called the zoo exercises, which are basically um, looking for uh, has the child moved through those early movement patterns? And because if they have, then they are truly ready to begin the academic work of first grade. And so those are things such as crawling. Uh, can they move on their belly and use opposite leg and arm to push and pull? Can they do a crab walk? Uh, and then, of course, things like fine motor skills, holding a crayon, um, a stick crayon, a pencil, utensils, a paintbrush. And then lastly, I would say uh, cooperative versus parallel play. Are they moving into that sense that there are other children around them that they can share with and that they can play with rather than just alongside? Yes. And so much of what I heard you just talk about, which I think is I mean, you can tell me more unique to Steiner's view on human development is the importance of all the, that physical stuff. I feel mm -hmm. like maybe when you look at a traditional approach to education, you're looking much more at academic achievements of that kindergartner before you are talking about first grade. And so much mm -hmm. of what you described was so physical. And I think that's probably pretty unique to the Waldorf approach. I'm yeah. wondering actually if you can even – if there's a way you could be more specific about the hands and feet, uh, that development of, is it just kind of the extremities, like developing more coordination with the extremities? It's, well, we're definitely looking at coordination of those extremities, but we are also looking at that whole body and does the child, so for example, a lot of kindergartens and first grades, if they are lucky enough to have a little woods or forest to go walk, walking in, uh, the children may go on nature walks. And so there's a big difference between a child hiking in the woods versus walking on a sidewalk. And both are certainly great, but a teacher would be watching very carefully for the like the vestibular cap capacity capability of a child walking in the woods. And so that is certainly their hands, their feet, but it's also the integration of the whole body and, uh, you know, really, really focusing on the physical health of that that six-year-old, that five-year-old before moving into first grade. And the other thing that I was wondering about, and these are, I guess, two things that I've kind of heard before, one of which definitely I heard from my father-in-law, who was, been a, was a Waldorf teacher for a long time, about mm -hmm. 30, 30 years or so, but he's retired yeah. now. He told me that, and my husband, I think, distinctly remembers maybe doing this as a kindergartner, like being able to reach across 
your head and if you can touch your ear uh, yeah. on the other side. Uh-huh. Is that a thing? What yeah, is that, what is that about? <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a thing. I don't know a whole lot about that if that's the extension of the arm. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, that's not something that I really think that much about, but I know that in the first grade uh, assessment that early childhood teachers, or if a school has an extra lesson teacher, that they would certainly do a check like that. They're also doing eye tracking. And um, what I thought you were going to say when you reach across, but also um, is, does the child able to also reach to the left or to the right? So if a child is right-handed and an object has been placed on the right side, does the child reach over across the body and cross that midline and pick up the object and then bring it, or did they reach with their non-dominant left hand, pick it up, put it at the center of their chest and then move it over to the right hand. That is a, that is um, uh, also a hallmark, but I think the, uh, the hand to the ear over the head is more of a physical first. Can they do that? And then can they actually reach and what are those body proportions? Yeah. Right. And I mean, just looking at physical development, I have a toddler and my husband, mm-hmm. I kind of think it's funny, like he's so far from being able to do that. So we think to ourselves, it's like also this milestone that you're Mm -hmm. somehow, it's Mm -hmm. in our heads, I guess, for whatever reason, probably because my father-in-law put it in there. But the other question that I had was about turning seven within the first year. Is that kind of something we haven't, when you were talking about being ready, the readiness, you never talked about that, but um, I think a lot of traditional public schools in the U.S., the cutoff, I guess you would call mm-hmm. it, for going into first grade is either beginning of September, end of September, you have to turn six. But mm-hmm. in my memory, um, most of the kids in my first grade class, mm-hmm. I think there were 28 of us, mm-hmm. were, were older than that. Um, I turned seven um, towards the end of September in my first grade year. And yeah, some of the kids had turned seven mm-hmm. even in August. I think we actually even had a May birthday of the year previous. So I don't know if you can speak to how the age matters or doesn't matter or if there is kind of anything about age at all with the readiness yeah, so, factor. Yeah. Within the Waldorf movement, there is definitely still that marker of the age seven as a good year to start first grade. But like with anything, we don't want to be overly dogmatic. And so um, age is and birthday, at least at our school, is a cutoff, but it's not a firm 100%. We won't even look at the child cutoff. So we're also looking at things like the change of teeth, which I mentioned, because the idea from Steiner is that what we're really hoping is that this etheric, this life body uh, has done all of this really great work in forming the physical body. And now the child is freed up that etheric body or that life body is now freed up to do some academic work in first grade. And one signpost of that can be the change of teeth and, or, you know, the beginning of the loss of the first, those for those first teeth. Uh, but again, uh, it's important not to be overly dogmatic, but absolutely age of seven is something that I would say probably all Waldorf schools are striving for. Having said that, I had a um, 30 in my first, this, this round of first grade and a handful were under that, under that age seven, but 
probably 25 of them were right there. And I certainly can say for myself, it was so beneficial. I would have so not been ready for that um, year ahead of me. And my sister's birthday actually was in June. She turned seven in June and started first grade Mm -hmm. uh, in the fall as well. So it definitely was a a benefit to us. So my next question, now getting into how first grade gets started, what I know that it just kind of doesn't like you don't just show up in the classroom. You go and you visit the children, right? Before you mm-hmm. kind of go into what does that look like and what are you uh why do you do that? You know, I I don't know, I did not go to a traditional public school, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that's not kind of like a traditional approach to the start of school to the start of first grade. No, <laughs> right, no, it's not. Yeah, so the idea is that uh you go and you visit each child uh, for maybe 30 minutes or so in their home. And of course, you've talked ahead of time with the parents and decided, you know, will the child uh, show you their favorite places outside or will they show you, you know, their, um, their toys or, you know, whatever they're going to show you. But it's really an opportunity to sit down with a child and, um, you know, talk about how excited that you are, that they're going to join the class. And sometimes you may bring a tiny little gift or you might ask them about what their favorite animals are. Maybe you meet their family pet. Uh, but it's really an opportunity for a this first one-on-one, this first beginning of a journey of, you know, hopefully eight years where you become... Um, almost a third parent, you know, you really become this intimate uh, circle that I always like to remind parents of, especially as we move through the grades, that we adults are surrounding this child and we see that child and we love that child. So that that little visit, the summer before school starts is exactly that. And then I always would follow up with a postcard uh, to the children and telling them how excited I was for them to join the class. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you describe the beginning of that relationship. At some point, my my parents had kind of decided to send us to Waldorf school because they liked it and it felt good, but they didn't know lots about it. I think maybe my mom would read like one book, but the part that she was really into was someone had said to her at some point, this child's going to spend so much of their life at school. You know, you the experience of going to Waldorf school, certainly for me, was that part of the Waldorf teacher is not just the educating the academic mind, but also the nurturing of this Mm -hmm. developing human being, which is so much of what parents do at home. And to have that be this interactive relationship with the parents and the teacher where there's a relationship there that's established, I think is so beautiful and Mm -hmm. important and wonderful that you know, Waldorf education sets the teachers up to be able to, and the parents to be able to have that you know, working relationship together. Mm -hmm. So then we go into starting first grade. So Mm -hmm. what is it? I know it's kind of a special thing. The first day of first grade, what happens on the first day of first grade? What do you teach on the first day of first grade? And this could be a point as well where you could speak. Steiner actually gave an actual lecture about Mm -hmm. this day. So could you you speak to that? that, Yeah, that's that's found in um, Practical Advice to Teachers. Uh, It's the fourth discussion or the fourth lecture. And um, so Steiner makes a very big point about how important the first day of first grade is because it is that starting journey for the child in not only with their teacher, but as part of this one whole class. 
So I really like to, I mean, there are definitely specific things that I, I'll, I'll let you know what we do on the first day of first grade. But for me, what's most important is that we are beginning to uh, welcome the children into this world of heartfelt thinking, which is engaging the three soul forces of feeling, thinking, and willing And um, also, even very esoterically, but very practically, we are beginning to develop this 12th sense of seeing the other, seeing the other's ego, and this sense of doing good in the world. And in this time of upheaval and uh, in our country, uh, I, I think that it's really important to let the child know that they are seen, that they are included, that we love diversity, and that they are respected. And so from that very first day when I'm looking out at my class, uh, I am seeing each as an individual, but each as a whole, and trying to have an imagination of them uh, surrounded in this beautiful light, and that every day is a new day, and that every day I see them, and I know that they are brilliant and special. And then, of course, we talk to the children about why did they come to school? And Steiner talks about this very specifically, too, this idea that we would we should never talk down to a child and we should not only teach them what we think that they can understand immediately, but that rather we are always stretching them and saying things such as, Uh, the adults around you who you love and you respect and you revere your grandparents generations prior. They know how to read. We are going to learn how to read. They know how to write. We are going to learn how to write. They know how to do arithmetic and see the beauty in mathematics. And you are going to learn that too, dear sweet children. And uh, so probably the most profound thing that we actually do on the first day of first grade is that the teacher will quite uh, majestically draw a straight line and a curved line on the chalkboard and then invite the children to not only have conversation about it, but each child the opportunity to come to the chalkboard and do that. And then we talk about where in the world do you see the straight line and the curve and the children on their own come to this realization that there are that the whole world that the stars that the trees that the plants the tiniest snail that their household their pillows their chairs their plates everything in the world is made up of straight line and curve and this is i've had three first grades now and every time i like to giggle and joke and say guess what first graders you have homework <laughs> And the uh, and I say, go home and look for the straight line and curves in your home or in your backyard. And they are so excited. And so on the one hand, it's this very exciting moment. But uh, as with all Waldorf education, it is a very profound moment because the children are now beginning to see the world for this, uh, you know, the, the incredible nature that it is. Yes, I just so can attest to that. I remember leaving that first day just so excited. And I feel like that was so much of the groundwork of all of first grade for me, everything we did. And my teacher was just so inspiring and so enthusiastic and had us engaged in such a way that, you know, we were almost like begging for that next thing to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like I don't 
hear my peers who did not go to Alder School mm-hmm. often speak about their education that way. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out of that first lesson, is there a, a block that you would do first? So for those that are listening that may not be familiar pretty much all through grades one through 12, you're um, within a Waldorf school, you have the block lesson at the beginning, which rotates throughout mm-hmm. the year, different mm-hmm. things, and then subjects later in the day. Um, and these block classes are uh, 90 minutes or so to two hours and mm-hmm. depending on the grade, and then they rotate, they are about three weeks at a time, give or take, depending on what it is. So I'm wondering for this first block lesson, is it the same every first class, every first grade class that you start or does is that shift? And then what are the other blocks that come mm-hmm. up in that first grade curriculum? Yes. In the past, in my first first grade, uh, we started with a couple of weeks of form drawing. And we don't do that anymore. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a, a really wonderful groundbreaking book called The Roadmap to Literacy um, that you've probably heard about, um, a guide to teaching language arts. And it, one is from one to three and the other is four through eight. I think that, that, that has really changed even for a teacher with like me, who has a lot of years of experience that changed some things up for me, but within first grade, the blocks go back and forth between mathematics and language arts. And then with, in addition to that, there is a nature studies or home surroundings block and there's a class play block, which could be considered a language arts block. And then instead of having a form drawing block right at the beginning of the year, I've I've come to integrate it into at least a once a weekly session. And so if you were going to start the year with language arts, then you would start with uh, learning the alphabet and learning the alphabet, you would go with both the upper and lowercase consonants first, and then move into the vowels. And very particularly, it's what's very important is really giving the students a sense that they are going to become independent in their writing and their reading. And specific to Waldorf education is this idea that you begin with writing and you help the children to understand that even though language arts is a convention, it's a conventional, it's, it's created by human beings, that we are always going to do it um, artistically. And also very important is that we're not only engaging just the hand and just the eye, but that if we can start with writing, that we are actually mysteriously engaging the whole human being in the um, ability to write and then to read. And so you would spend about a, a you know um, um, four weeks on the consonants, always bringing the the first letters through this um, these archetypal images. So the ones that Steiner refers to in that um, practical advice book is, for example, the letter F for fish. And you can see how, uh, you know, just in your imagination, if you kind of slant the letter F a little bit, you see a fish coming out of there, M for mountain, V for valley. And not uh, to do that overly, you do a handful of letters like that and then move on and introduce the letters. The vowels are a little bit different. Those are the singing letters is what I've always called them. And they are uh, brought in a separate block. And it's of course really important to um, bring both, you know, all of the vowel sounds. 
Uh, and then something that's also really important in that first language arts block is giving the children a sense that they are authors, that they are actually able to write. And so uh, the Roadmap to Literacy book calls it kid writing, but it's also talking on a page. It's, 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 um, it's not new, but it's, uh, it's very, very important that the children can read, uh, begin to write and read what they have written and then it's also an amazing check for the teacher as well, because then you see where the child is. Uh, that's jumping ahead a little bit. But and then so the back and forth, it would be language arts and then mathematics. And uh, with mathematics, the first block would be the quality of number. And the quality of number, again, mathematics is really teaching soul substance and language arts is really teaching a, something that's very conventional, you know, created by humans. But with mathematics, if you start with this quality of number, what I mean by what is, what does the one, number one mean? You know, it's the I, um, it is, you know, the earth, it is, you know, so many things. What is number two? Me and my friend, uh, uh, my two hands, my two eyes. And we, you know, we continue to move through that. And again, I'm never giving the children the answers. I'm always asking them. And so right from that beginning, that quality of number block gives the children the sense of truth and beauty uh, in number and that connection between the natural world and the cosmic world and number. So, uh, yeah, so then the next block for mathematics would be the four operations. And uh, you probably remember your teacher probably created four puppets or four dolls that are represented the four operations, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, something very different in Waldorf education, which I can completely testify is brilliant. Uh, we bring the four operations together at the same time, rather than in mainstream education, first one operation is brought and mastered, quote unquote, and then et cetera, the other three. But what I love about bringing the four operations at the same time is that then the connections are hardwired in the child. They, they know them from the beginning. They even understand, without using the language, the inverse operation. And so now that I'm in fourth grade with my class, they know how to check long division. Uh, I don't need to tell them. They know that the inverse operation of division is multiplication. And um, they've known that. They've known that since first grade. And I that's just amazing to me. Uh, we also begin in first grade, along with the four operations, to begin to master and memorize our math facts, and particularly through skip counting and of course, this um, very super, two super important points. First is that all of math in the early grades is brought rhythmically and through movement and through singing and verse. And uh, because the idea is that quite literally, we want the math to get into their bones, to get into their full body. That's why jumping rope is so important as a hallmark from early childhood into first grade. Can the child be rhythmic? And to be able to count rhythmically the the tables, the times tables, for example, is so, it just, it, it's it's a rote memorization that is not boring, that is not dry. And so that's very important. And then the other is that with the four operations, we're always beginning with the whole number. 
And so, for example, Steiner talks in that same, I think it's that same chapter. It might be in a different one where you you start with uh, 24 gems, for example, and that each child has a little bag of gems or um, I always gave them stones from the East Coast oceans and put 24 in a pile and then ask the children to pull out seven, pull out three, pull out, you know, whatever number. And then they see right there before them that seven and three and eight and six all together make up the 24. And you can do that with each of the operations. So this sense of starting with the whole and moving to the parts uh, in mathematics is is super, super important. And just actually jumping back again to the language arts, we do it very similarly where uh, the children and I would come up with a sentence. I'd write the sentence on the board, the whole sentence, and then we would step back and begin to, oh, well, do we see the word, um, you know, the word fish and what is that made out of and where are the sounds and, um, you know, et cetera but giving the children that sense of yeah the the whole and then dividing it into the parts and then uh, we also move very quickly into the actual number so you know the teachers love to give uh, these artistic stories of the you know the four temperaments and how they're related to the four operations but Steiner also very much cautions against languishing in that that there's enough beauty in number in itself that we can move pretty quickly into the 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 equations themselves. And so lots of that in first grade, lots of opportunities to practice, lots of opportunities to move the numbers. If you have a great large class of 25 or 30, it's really easy for the children themselves to become the, so we have a class of 25. Okay. Let's divide that into five equal groups. Oh, how many are in each group? And uh, give the children opportunities to figure those out, um, to divide those groups themselves, to add and subtract themselves is it, they they absolutely love they love it <laughs> they absolutely love it uh, and then some other blocks are the the nature studies or the home surrounding and again that's a real opportunity to be immersed in nature to go on hikes and uh, to really get the beginnings of a Gertian observation right we our science in Waldorf schools is quite different from mainstream education and. Uh, it's all harbors are all hinges on the idea that we must observe first and, but we don't have to come to hard, cold facts. We don't have to come to conclusions that we're open and that we, so the opportunity, for example, a child to visit, to have a nature studies block where every day or every couple of days they get to go on the same hike and to see the same uh, bird's nest or to see the same river. And, oh, but Miss Cran, look, it rained last night. And look, you know, the clay is now all wet and gooey. Can we make little clay pots? And so that's also really important from an observation of the children's 
you know, a beginning capacity to observe the natural world. But again, from a physical perspective of them getting uh, in the elements, uh, hiking in uneven terrain, um, getting wet, uh, getting muddy, uh, get, being outside in the cold, and all of those are super, super important. Yeah, so those are, the, I guess, the main blocks. So the class play is also a main block. Uh, which is an opportunity for reverence and choral speech and uh, pentatonic flute playing, possibly singing, memorization. Uh, and then, of course, probably most important is the children's understanding that they are now giving this gift of speech, this art, this art form called speech and song, and that they're giving it to their parents and their grandparents and the whole school um, this gift is is super important and um, beautiful, beautiful to experience. Yes, I did have a, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was somebody speaking with me. I think it was in season three about Waldorf High School, I remember. And they were talking about the Waldorf curriculum and the introduction to natural sciences and being an, a keen observer, becoming a keen observer through that process. And he was telling me a story about I think it was a parent who was coming in to the high school, um, just like on an, an open kind of night for the parents to come visit. And he was looking at the drawings the from the anatomy class. And he was mm -hmm. saying how some of the high school students were drawing more accurate, uh, you know, drawings of these really detailed parts of human anatomy better than resident like, doctors. Yeah. He was so impressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was a doctor himself and was telling the the teacher that. I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child. And now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S. Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton, along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S. At Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. I also was thinking as you were speaking about when we've talked about how you know, even coming into first grade, you want to kind of look at these different aspects of physical development. And you are talking about rhythmic, having an ability to be a part of kind of a rhythm and counting and things like that. And it did make me think how I know for my first grade class, there also was kind of a spectrum, of course, too, like not every mm -hmm. kid was an athlete. 
I want to say, and could like Mm -hmm. be really coordinated and jump rope. And I just wanted to kind of see, you know, what your perspective was in that too, how you'll have kids who just can like do all the things physically Mm -hmm. and it's kind of easy. And some of the kids struggle a little bit more, something like jump roping, for instance, Mm -hmm. and how it's not like, oh, these kids over here who struggle with jump roping somehow like aren't going to make it in first grade. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if that's something you can speak to with that physical aspect, how kind of different kids, I don't know, I'm I'm assuming kind of develop Mm -hmm. at different times and how they have different qualities, I guess, that kind of come out at different, different times individually. Yeah, that is actually one of the beauties, uh, one of the many beauties of having a large class. And so you will have children who come to the class in first grade, and some of them can read, and some of them can, uh, you know, stand on one foot for a long time, and some of them can jump rope, and some of them can't. And what's really important is for every child to be reassured by the, their teacher that everybody has strengths and everybody has challenges and that we are here to work on all of those things. And so from, from a, from a physical perspective, you know, we're moving most of the day. And so, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of sitting down at the desk, um, but there are certainly some concentrated periods of time that we're doing that, but we are um, giving them lots of opportunities to, so for example, at the door to the classroom, the child and the teacher in non-COVID times shake each other's hand and look each other in the eye. And then perhaps a balance beam is set up and then the children takes the balance beam all the way over to the cubby and then they hang up their clothes. And, you know, so lots of opportunities to help the children develop their physicality. And, but also knowing that the very child who may be the most physically capable may be the child who's going to struggle with learning to play the pentatonic flute or learning to read or holding, having a great pencil grip. And so the, the fact that they have all of these new friends around them and that they see, Hey, I'm really great at this, but I struggle at this. And my teacher knows that. And my teacher says, that's okay. uh, Is a real gift to the children and that they're not looking at their deficits as much as looking at their capacities and seeing that they can be a helper to their friend and that in turn their friend will also help them. And so these opportunities to work together as this one, this idea of this one whole class and helping each other and doing their best. Yeah, those are all opportunities. And, you know, one of the beauties of moving through the grades is that the children know better than them, you know, better than anybody who, oh, you know, let's ask so-and-so to do that because she's really, she always can do that. And, and it just, it gives every child an opportunity to shine, which is, you know, when, when they walk out into the world, that's very important. Yeah. I'm so glad I had you speak to that. It's so interesting because it really almost directly spoke to my experience contrasted with my husband's experience who also, he also went to a Waldorf school. Mm. Uh, Myself, I came into first grade going on to a different kindergarten and I actually had really taught myself to read from like audio tapes essentially in that kindergarten. And my mom was busy with smaller children. So I would take them home and listen to them and basically taught myself how to read. And my husband came from the Waldorf kindergarten. He was telling me that he 
doesn't have any memory of any introduction to academics. He thinks he might have written his own like name before going into first grade. And for people hearing this that are kind of just beginning to like look into Waldorf education, one of the things that is unique to it is this delayed Mm -hmm. uh, implementation of academics. So, and I was telling somebody this about our experiences and we were not in the same class, actually, I should say that first, but so I would come in, my class I think was 28-ish, maybe 29. Mm -hmm. So I came into the classroom and already knowing how to read. And some of my peers had not even, had not been introduced to the, all the letters in the alphabet. And I, as a first grader, had no idea. I, and it also in my mind, I never felt like so far ahead that I was somehow bored or wasn't engaged. And also I felt like I was learning all the time. Mm-hmm. And I never felt that my peers were somehow like, quote unquote, like less, like new mm-hmm. less or something. And I just feel like the ability of the teacher to recognize where these different children were at and kind of work on all of the skills that they would need to progress through their education together is really incredible. And I should also add that my husband was that kid who could do like every walk across the balance yeah. beam, jump rope in <laughs> right. and pattern. Yeah. And jump across the balance beam. Yes, I was yeah. not that kid at all. Right. So it's right. just kind of interesting how over time, both of us kind of progressed through with these peers within the class who had different skill sets and never, you know, I also think that's kind of the hallmark of a really good Waldorf teacher, especially, I mean, this speaks to my early years in Waldorf education is that to, you feel as a student, and certainly I did, just so everyone's special, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm working on this, but I'm, you feel just kind of loved and cared for. And you described that earlier, how that it's almost like another parent, that teacher in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there's, and I always felt that about my Waldorf teachers, that they felt all the children in the classroom were special, special and they kind of all have their own gifts that make them unique. And um, so I'm glad that you spoke to your experience working with yeah. that too, because I definitely experienced that kind of on the other end. Yeah, and I could also just um, add that in Waldorf education, we're not looking to uh, pigeonhole a student into becoming the painter, the athlete, the author, the you know whatever. Uh, we're really looking to cultivate full human beings, and so that uh, a Waldorf student should feel upon their graduation, either from eighth or 12th grade, that they are musicians, that they are poets, that they are athletes, that they are uh, mathematicians, scientists, historians, authors, and that, you know, that at base that they are good human beings ready to do the good in the world. And uh, whereas a lot of children immediately like, oh, I don't like math. Oh, I don't do math. I'm going to be X. And Waldorf students generally don't have that feeling because of this idea that we're we're cultivating all of the capacities in a child and my assumption is that every child is brilliant and that it there are capacities in them that will be unfolded on their journey of lifelong education and um, that they will have they will be able to do everything yes and I kind of want to I guess even go a little more in depth maybe on what we're just talking about. Um, And it's my last question for you. So looking at that around seven-year-old, and there are parents listening to this um, who are homeschooling or have their child in a Waldorf school or have their child in a public school setting, or maybe they're an educator in another setting that's not Waldorf. What 
from kind of Steiner's perspective on development in your personal experience, seeing, you know, you've said you've been through three first grade classes mm-hmm. now. Um, what is the first grader going through developmentally and how can these different people involved in that child's life support them in that year? So the child developmentally, the first grader uh, really feels still that they are at one with the world. And by that, I mean that they are connected to their parents, to their family members, to their teacher, uh, that everything is one whole. You know, that's why I like to refer to first grade as this one whole. And so developmentally, they need to understand, they need to feel that this one whole world from uh, with that they are so that they are in that it's not even that they are a part of that they are they are in that is uh, is good and is safe and so then developmentally they need to hear for example fairy tales they need to hear those archetypes and um that that fairy tales are of, of particular interest to me um, given some lectures or workshops at the Osna conferences on that, because uh, we, uh, particularly from the perspective of uh, gender as a social construct, construct and race as a social construct, and so when we're telling something like fairy tales, which which developmentally the children need to hear those archetypes of of you know king queen prince princess wolf. Um, you know, good, evil, all of those archetypes they need to hear, but the teacher needs to feel very much in her soul. Does this fairy tale speak to me? And can it speak to the class? Can it speak to every individual? And I, you know, and one of my research questions is very much given that, you know, given the, how we construct gender and race in our country and in the world, what are, what kinds of fairy tales from where can the fairy tales come culturally indigenous uh, fairy tales that we make sure that on the one hand, we are getting the archetype, but on the other hand, we are making sure that every child is seen and that doesn't mean that we're doing these modernized fairy tales. We are actually going back to the sources, but we uh, in Waldorf education are really making sure as first grade teachers that developmentally we are looking far and wide so that every story meets the children in the class. Uh, developmentally, the children also need to um, see that their teacher is a loving authority and that that they can trust their teacher and that they can feel at home with their teacher. Developmentally, the child needs to be met uh, with lots of robust physicality. And so I'm in my school, I'm very, uh, people know that if I have a first grader who needs to lay across the desk, I will not reprimand that first grader because I know that developmentally from a, from a physical perspective, that child needs to work those things out, that they need to work out that, that, um, that physical developmental growth. And so, yeah, I, I would not reprimand a child for uh, falling out of their chair, for leaning on their chair, for all of those things. Well, I would certainly help them move through that, but 
developmentally, they, they need that. So they, you know, they need that nourishment of the, of the fairy tales. They need that physical uh, garnering of these, of, you know, robust physical activity. They need to see that the world is good. They need to see the, the profundity of number in first grade. They need to uh, see that, they are part of a whole, that there is a whole and that they are part of it. And, uh, you know, to, to really walk in the world with a sense of security and a sense of love. And because all too soon that third grade, that third grade angst, that existential angst will come, but in first grade developmentally, that's not where they are. And, um, they're curious and they yearn to know, and, you know, going, just going back to that idea of Gertian science, that observation that can be brought into language arts, that's brought certainly into painting and drawing that because it's not what you think you see, it's not what you think you observe, it's what you actually are observing. And that developmentally children need to begin to hone those, those capacities. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you. I did kind of draw on another question, actually, while you were speaking there. And, you know, you were speaking to the different archetypes and the fairy tales and the stories that you're meeting this child with um, and your your group in front of you as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you teach in I think more urban setting mm-hmm. uh, where you may have more kind of diversity in your in your classroom. And I'm wondering, um, so for me, and of course I went to Waldorf school a long, long time ago. I'm in my thirties. Um, but there wasn't really not very much diversity in my classroom, actually almost no diversity. We were all, you know, um, white European descended Mm -hmm. children, pretty much more or less. And I'm wondering when you're, you know, looking at the group in front of you and what represents them and background and also at what point developmentally is it important to introduce these stories? You know, is it also important to introduce these stories from this kind of diverse world that we're living in to that group? I mean, everywhere is more diverse than it was 30 years ago, but I'm wondering if there is, basically, if you could speak to kind of the experience of someone, for instance, in a more rural school setting where there may be less diversity. Um, Do you believe there still is that same level of importance developmentally to introduce the stories from these different cultures and backgrounds? Yes, yes, I definitely do. And, you know, I would say just, so I think that it's important for, it was when I was raising my son and my daughter, it was as important for my son to see himself as a feminist as it was for my daughter. And I would say that that translates to cultural, racial, ethnic, uh, religious diversity as well. And so if you were in a school where you didn't have the, in the, the luxury or the, you know, the opportunity of, of diversity in your class, I would say all, equally important to bring those stories. Uh, equally important to have uh, a crayon, you know, a, a, a plethora of crayons that represent all skin tones. Uh, equally important to bring uh, stories where. Uh, you know, on the the savannas of, you know, an, an African country or, uh, you know, very important to me because we talk a lot about how 
uh, Waldorf education should be place-based and you actually shouldn't feel like you can walk into a Waldorf school in South Africa and have it look exactly the same as a Waldorf school in Cincinnati, Ohio, that there should be something different. And that in Ohio, for example, in Cincinnati, we know that we are on the land of the Adena and the Hopewell and the Shawnee and the Miami. And to tell fairy tales from those cultures is super important. Uh, whether you have those indigenous people in your class at that time or not. Um, so that's important place-based, but also if you're in rural New Hampshire, uh, you know, you still would want to give that gift of a rich cultural, diverse language arts curriculum where the fairy tales are coming from all over the world. And I would say that the caveat that the research for the teacher is to just be uh, to do their research and make sure that the particular fairy tales are meeting those archetypal truths for that developmental stage, right? Because we know that within Waldorf education, we're following very carefully this picture of the development of consciousness. That's why we do fairy tales in first grade. That's you know why we do Norse myths or some something along those lines in fourth grade. Uh, it's not, you know, Steiner never said specifically, oh, you have to do Norse myths or you have to do, uh, you know, um, Grimm's fairy tales. What he was trying to say is that from his experience, that's what he did because those were the people, that's what, that was his, what he understood. But now I would say that with, you know, with this very critical, very important light shed on what is Waldorf education and uh, and who are we meeting? It's even more important to have a rich uh, resource, rich resources. And also, I've even experimented actually with telling some of the fairy tales using uh, gender neutral language, and the children don't even notice. <laughs> it's it's very profound. And again, I think that's very important because we know that from birth, you know, literally. You can hear it in my voice. Oh, you sweet little angel. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at this little buster. Oh, I mean, immediately a child is gendered. And within our culture, people are, um, you know, identified by race for good and for bad. And so I would say it's really important to give lots and lots of archetypal pictures that are rich and diverse. Uh, the stories are rich and diverse, but the archetypes are the same. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you speak to that. I, I feel so much uh, in, a, in agreement, um, you know, because part of, or not part of, really one of the goals of Waldorf education is to prepare children for the world that they're going to be living in, the world that they're going to go out into, which is going to be a really diverse world, whether they stay in a rural place or not uh, over time. So I, I also feel that, you know, it's kind of an important thing and you touched on it so beautifully there. So thank you so much, Lori. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about first grade? You went into such beautiful detail about the blocks and these different things. So wonderful. Uh, I would just say that, you know, it's the beginning of a, of a long journey. And uh, if there's anything that, I, as their teacher, can do is to instill in them a love of lifelong learning and learning that takes place even when you're 85 and 95. And also to know that 
they, you know, just going back again to that 12th sense that at some point uh, in the world, uh, we won't rest when other people are are in pain. And if I can give a glimmer of that in my classroom, then I feel like I've done my job. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much again for, for speaking with me today, Lori. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you all so much for listening in. This episode was a pleasure to create for you, and there is so much more coming in this season. What's the nine-year change? Why do Waldorf fourth graders often study the Norse myths? These are the sorts of questions that you can look forward to exploring with me as we continue to learn more about each grade through the lens of the Waldorf approach. Know that the show notes page for this episode can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash first grade. Quickly, I want to give an extra special thanks to all of the Waldorfy Patreon supporters. I really love running this show. I love connecting with you through this platform and over on social media. And thanks to our Patreon supporters, I am able to do this. So thank you all so much. What is Patreon, you may be wondering? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. My intention with this podcast was to create a resource that was always accessible and free for all, but unfortunately free does not pay the bills. If you want to learn more about becoming a supporter on Patreon, please visit waldorfy.com forward slash Patreon. Now, I also want to thank all of you listening too. I know that some of you don't have that little bit extra, especially right now to support the show. So no problem. I love reading your reviews on Apple podcasts. I love when you share episodes on social media. I see you too. And I want to thank you. Even just listening is supporting. So, so much gratitude from me to you again. Thank you all so much for listening in. Be well.